Purim is a holiday celebrated by Jews worldwide on the 14th and 15th day of the month of Adar. In the rest of the world, it is on the 14th day we celebrate it. On walled cities such as Jerusalem and its surrounding suburbs, it is celebrated on the 15th day of Adar. Now it commemorates the salvation of the Jewish nation from the genocidal ambitions and efforts of Haman and Ahasuerus and their cohorts in Persia. What I want to do tonight is tell the story of how the Jews ended up in Persia, living under the Persians in the middle of the Middle East. So we're going to try to do the batch story, setting the stage for the Purim story. How did the nation that conquered Israel, conquered Judea under Joshua, how did they suddenly end up under the auspices of Ahasuerus and Haman in Persia? So the plan is that this week we'll tell the backstory of Purim, and next week we will tell the actual story of Purim as it is told in the Bible, in the book of Esther, and in other classical sources of Jewish literature. I want to begin the story at the end of the first commonwealth. The Jewish people, they enter the land of Israel after Moshe dies. According to Jewish sources, that is 1272 before the Common Era. They spend significant time quieting the local inhabitants that are there, the Canaanites, the seven Canaanite nations under 31 kings, 31 city-states. For the majority of the beginning years, they have to deal with pockets of resistance and rebellion. But eventually, they have a certain degree of quiet and stability. And things really hit their apex when the first king, King Saul, is instituted. But really, his reign passes over very quickly. And King David, the archetype, the prototype, the quintessential Jewish king, is installed as the king of Israel. He finishes the conquest of the land, he purchases and conquers Jerusalem, and under the leadership of Solomon, King Solomon, his son, the first temple is built. Now, we're going to pick up the story at the end of the first temple. The first temple and the second temple both stand for roughly 400 years. One of them is 410 years, one of them is 420 years, the first is 410, the second is 420. And In the middle of the first commonwealth of the first temple era, there's going to be a massive shift. There's going to be a schism, and the northern tribes are going to secede. They're going to form their own country called the northern kingdom of Israel. The southern kingdom of Judah is going to be comprising the Jewish nation uh, thenceforth. So our story begins in the fifth century before the common era. The 10 lost tribes of, the, of Israel, of the northern kingdom of Israel, are long gone. They were conquered by the Assyrians under Sancherib, and they were resettled to parts unknown and replaced instead by a people called the Samaritans. At this time, the southern kingdom of Judah is still led and inspired by prophets. The most notable of them for our purposes is, of course, Jeremiah. But unfortunately, the the overarching trend of the nation is downhill. Many of the kings, they embrace idolatry, 
And even during the reign of some of the righteous kings, there are vast swaths of the nation that spiral downhill towards spiritual erosion and idolatry. And the prophet Jeremiah, his career is marked by calls of repentance, as all prophets are, but also predictions of doom if the Jews don't right their path. The Jewish people have been in Israel for 800 years already. To them, it's, they might as well be there forever. It's permanent. But of course, reading the Torah, there's many verses in the Torah that say that the conquest of the land and the settlement of the land is conditional. If the Jewish people uphold their spiritual stature, they get the merit to remain there. If they devolve, if they adopt the ways of the Canaanites, just like the Canaanites were evicted from the land, so too the Jews will be evicted. And that is Jeremiah's message to the nation. Repent quickly, reject, eschew idolatry, or else terrible things are going to happen. And he was not one to coddle uh, or to comfort the nation. Only once the destruction actually happens, only then does he begin to comfort the nation. And he's not a very popular prophet. Uh, People don't like when they're told terrible things that will happen to them. They want to be given a message of hope. And the role of Jeremiah was to give them the brass tacks and to tell them what is going to be and to try to compel them to go back to God, back to Torah and away from idolatry. But sadly, much of his warnings fell on deaf ears. At the time, the ascendant empire was the Babylonian empire, and they were committed to capturing the entirety of the land controlled by the previous mega-empire, the Assyrians. And that, of course, included Judea. So what to do? Do we resist these new Babylonian conquerors? Do we submit ourselves to them, become a vassal state to them? So Jeremiah is of the opinion to submit to the Babylonians, to give in to them, to accept their, their rule. But the Jewish king... Yehoiakim, he decides to launch a rebellion against the Babylonians, which was very foolish. And you would imagine that his philosophy was, well, we have God on our side and we win every war because we're the Jews and we've been here for forever and no foreign invader is going to conquer us. But sadly, uh, he was mistaken. And Jeremiah is publicly opposing this revolt. And he's prophesizing about exile, about dispersion, about, about, about sadness, about things all heading south. And he's even writing prophetically the book of Lamentations, the book of Echa, the book that we read on Tishabav, the book that details and outlines the desolation of Jerusalem and the terrible things that happened. And for his trouble, he's flogged and he's arrested and he's imprisoned. And there's even death threats that he has to face. And there's imposters, there's fake prophets that are comforting the nation and comforting the king, saying, no, don't worry, anything bad's going to happen to you. And they even take the scrolls of his prophecy and they burn them. As would be expected, this initial revolt is absolutely silenced by the Babylonians, but this does not lead to a total destruction of all of Judea. 
Instead, what they chose to do was to take the cream of the crop, take the leaders, the movers and shakers of the nation, and if you take that class away, the leaders are gone, that's very likely or, or, or more likely to, to mitigate the risk of future rebellion. And they figured, the Babylonians did, we're not going to destroy Judea, we're just going to take away from them the people who could potentially lead a rebellion, and that way we will ensure that a future rebellion will not happen. So the king is taken away, and many prophets taken away, and many people who ran industries, and all those people are taken to Babylon, and they're removed from Judea. A new king is installed, Tzitzkiyahu, or Zedekiah, and he's there for several years. He's not really viewed as a very strong leader, which is probably the reason why the Babylonians chose him to begin with. But he, quite foolishly, he launches a revolt again against the Babylonians. It seems likely that it was he wasn't really the power player. It was more his advisors, but he agreed to have this revolt under his reign. Jeremiah again objects, and again he is thrown into prison. And the military situation begins to deteriorate quite seriously, and the king calls on to Jeremiah, they extract him from prison, and they have a serious conversation. And the book of Jeremiah in chapter 38 details this conversation. The king says to him, okay, I want to know what's actually going to happen. Don't sugarcoat anything for me. And the prophet tells him, if I don't sugarcoat it, you might not be happy. And if you're not happy, you might feel a distinct urge to shoot the messenger. (laughs) So the deal is, I'll tell you what God has planned for you on the condition that you don't kill me. So Zedekiah, he swears in God's name that he's not going to harm Jeremiah or not to allow others to harm. And Jeremiah tells him very clearly, you better submit and surrender to Babylon. If you do that, your life will be spared. The life of your children will be spared. Jerusalem won't be destroyed. However, if you continue the revolt, the Babylonians will burn down the entire city, will destroy Judea, will take you hostage. Things are really bad. This is not quite what Sitiyah was expecting. And he was worried that if this message goes out, that's going to disempower the revolt and it's going to spread fear in the ranks of the troops. And therefore, he makes Jeremiah swear not to reveal the contents of this conversation. He was worried what's going to be, there will be mutiny if this gets out. So he tells him, if anyone asks you what happened, what did we talk about? Just tell them that we talked about other things. You try to get out of prison, whatever. Don't tell them what you actually told me. And Jeremiah abides by this command, is returned to prison. The verse describes all the officers came over to Jeremiah. What, what were we talking about? What's the deal? And he's like, he told them the, the, the made-up story. And he was thrown back into prison where he, were, he remained until the Babylonians actually ca- captured Jerusalem. Now, this revolt really ended very poorly for the Jewish nation, for Judea, for the king, for the temple, for everyone involved. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar, who was the king of the Babylonian Empire, 
he laid siege to Jerusalem, and this two-year siege really marks one of the low points in our history. And if you read the Book of Lamentations, it outlines the terrible events that happened in Jerusalem, the mass starvation, resorting to cannibalism that happened during those times. I want to read you a quote from chapter 4 in the Book of Lamentations, the Book of Echa. The tongue of the suckling infant cleaves to its palate from thirst. Young children beg for bread. No one extends it to them. Those who once feasted extravagantly lie destitute in the streets. Those who were brought up in scarlet clothing wallow in trash. Their appearance has become blacker than soot. They are not recognized in the street. Their skin has shriveled to under bones. It has become dry as wood. Hands of compassionate women have boiled their own children. They became their food when the daughter of my people was shattered. So this is a description of just terrible things that were happening in Jerusalem during the time of the siege. On the 17th day of Tammuz, the walls of the city were breached. In fact, we still, till this day, every year on the 17th day of Tammuz, there is a fast day to mark this point in the destruction of the temple. Thousands of Babylonians poured in through the city walls and began a month of slaughter. On the ninth day of Av, exactly three weeks later, the temple was set aflame. The temple was destroyed. The royal palace was destroyed. The vessels of the temple were looted. The city was burned to the ground. Now, King Tzitkiyahu, he had made some sort of plans to evade capture were such circumstances to happen. So he had a tunnel burrowed out of the city and away to the, uh, to the Jordanian Valley towards the Engedi uh, Yamamelech area. And that was his plan. Him and his family would escape. And he tries to escape. And according to the Midrash, what happened is the Babylonian soldiers were trying to capture a deer. And wherever they were tracking it, and the deer kept evading them. So they kept him following it until he led them, so to speak, to the entrance of the tunnel. And who waltzes out of the entrance of the tunnel? It's the king, it's his people, and they grab them. And in typical Babylonian cruelty, they first murdered his children in front of him, and then they gouged out his eyes, the eyes of the king Sitio, and along with caravans of Jewish survivors are led in chains to Babylon. And this march is just one of the saddest marches in history. Jewish people, according to Jewish sources, have been living in the land. There's been ups and downs, of course, but they've been in the land for 852 years, and now it seems like it's, it's all over. Uh, the prophet Jeremiah, uh, the Babylonians did not want him to go and join the nation, and he refused to remain a free man while his brothers were being led in chains into slavery. And he tried to follow to see where they are, where's these roads that they're leading them to Babylon. And we're told in Jewish sources, he came upon one road that it has streets of blood going up and down. He knows this is, this is the road to follow. And he looks on the ground in a very dramatic episode, and he sees ch- small little footsteps of small children And he stoops down low and kisses these footsteps. This is the future of our nation. Eventually, he finds the captives. He embraces them. He cries out 
out loud and weeps alongside them. Woe to you, my brothers and my people. How did such a thing terrible terrible happen to you? Why did you guys not listen to my prophecy? You should have, instead of crying now, you should have cried then. One ounce of repentance before the destruction could have maybe staved it off. And he, with his tremendous love for his brethren, he takes the iron chains and puts it upon his own shoulders and identifies with them. But they arrive uh, to Babylon. Many have died on the way. Many die once they get there. And we get, of course, a very vivid description of what happened to them along the way. Chapter, I think it's 137 of the book of Psalms on the rivers of Babylon, the Babylonians that are trying to stir up a mirthful song from the captives. Sing to us like you sing in the temple. How could we sing the song of God on foreign land? And they take a, a pledge and an oath. If I forget you, O Jerusalem... Let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue adhere to my palate if I fail to recall you. Very famous words that we still say today to mourn Jerusalem. If I fail to elevate Jerusalem above my foremost joy, such terrible things. But they're saying bad things should happen to me if I ever forget these moments. And thus begins the Babylonian settlement. The Jews are going to remain, or a contingency of Jews are going to remain in Babylon. From that point until the most recent century, uninterrupted. Of course, then almost all the Jews are coalesced in Babylon. And though they are led to Babylon in chains, things kind of improve sort of rapidly. They're going to be granted for a large portions of their time in Babylon, a certain degree of autonomy, of self-governance. They're going to have their go-between who's going to intermediate between them and the Babylonians and they are going to be allowed to have their own system of laws and their own judicial system and courts. And moreover, those 10,000 Jews that were led into exile a decade prior, well, they got to Babylon and they established a thriving Jewish community with all the needed infrastructure. And the Talmud points out that this is a, an example of God giving the antidote before the malady, that the, the remedy for the plight of the Jewish nation, where they're going to come to Babylon, and what's going to be with them? How are they going to have continuity? How are they going to have a community that's going to be able to thrive and absorb all these traumatized immigrants? What's going to be with them? Well, God says, okay, I'm going to send a contingency 10 years in advance, and they'll build whatever is needed to absorb the new immigrants and have a thriving Jewish life. Jeremiah tells them, you're going to be here for a while. Pitch your tent. Tells them to build houses, settle down, plant gardens, eat your fruit. This is going to be a place where you're going to be for a little bit. Marry women, bear children, take wives for your sons, give your daughters husbands, settle down. This is your new home. Uh, get used to it. And the Jews, indeed, in Babylon, they settled in towns along the Euphrates rivers, and they began that civilization. Now, the king, Nebuchadnezzar, had a thing for Jewish advisors. The Jews, as they are today, were quite capable, competent, quite clever, honest, and he selected a cadre of young Jewish advisors to be in his inner circle. Most primary among them is, of course, Daniel. 
But in addition, we have other prophets like Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, very famous Jewish leaders who also were part of the, uh, of the advisory board of Nebuchadnezzar. And they tried to maintain their Jewish identity and their Jewish life and their Jewish practice and their Jewish standards despite being in Nebuchadnezzar's palace. And there's a major event that happens in Nebuchadnezzar's life that's going to raise the prominence of Daniel, but also it's a harbinger of God's plans for the Jewish nation and really the world stage going forward. Nebuchadnezzar is going to have a terrifying dream. It's so terrifying and so vivid, but he's going to forget it when he wakes up. And in his dream, he sees a huge statue whose head is made of gold, its chest and its arms are made of silver, its thighs are made of copper, its legs are made of iron, its feet and toes are part iron and part clay earthenware. And suddenly, this small little stone, this rolls up, it hits the, it hits the statue, and it breaks, and it destroys, and fragments and shards of this statue start shooting in all different directions, and the small, the small stone eventually grows into a mighty mountain. And the king wakes up, and he's all shaken up, and he knew he has a dream, and he knew it has some sort of meaning to him, but he forgets the dream And of course, he doesn't know the dream's interpretation because he can't remember the dream. Quickly, he calls all his advisors and says, okay, what did I dream last night? And what does it mean? And of course, all the necromancers and magicians and all the people there that were the soothsayers, they tell him, I'm sorry, uh, O king, how are we supposed to know what dream you had last night and what it means? You can't remember it. How do you expect us to remember it? And he threatens them with a deadly ultimatum. He says, either remember my dream for me, or I'm going to kill you all. And Daniel, thanks to the Almighty, reminds him of his dream. Moreover, he interprets the dream for him. And he tells him, this gold head, obviously it's descending in stature. There's the gold and the silver, and then it goes downhill from that. The gold head, well, that's you. That's the Nebuchadnezzar. You're the greatest king and the greatest empire. You have everything. However, you're going to be usurped. And there's going to be the next level, the silver chest and the silver arms. That's going to be the Persians and the Medes. They're going to be the successors to your great empire. And then the thighs made of copper are going to be the Greeks. And the iron leads are going to be the Romans who ruled uh, with an iron fist. And the partly iron and partly clay feet, that's referring to the Christians and the Muslims, the other great empires that are going to be the next on the world stage. And all the offshoots, all the toes are the various other offshoot empires that are going to result from the Christians and the Muslims. And that tiny stone, that tiny pebble is going to roll up and take it all over. That's a reference to Messiah. The Messiah is going to come and overthrow all these mighty kingdoms, and then establish itself, Messiah himself, as the kingdom to rule them all. Duly impressed, Nebuchadnezzar promotes Daniel, but now he's a little bit worried. What's going to be? He just essentially accepted the prophetic interpretation of a dream that spelled the demise of Nebuchadnezzar and his empire. 
So he decided to have a huge statue of his own likeness erected and make everyone bow and to submit the nation that to minimize the likelihood of rebellion, let's make sure everyone has it baked into them that we are totally subject to Nebuchadnezzar and we bow and prostrate ourselves before him. And of course, the Jews will have no part in it. And particularly the three other advisors, Hananiah, Mishal, and Azariah, they say, we ain't bowing down to it. And Nebuchadnezzar says, you better believe you will. And he says, oh, well, we don't. Well, okay, I'm going to kill you all. We don't care. So he makes a fire in a furnace and he heats it up to seven times normal heat. And he takes these people and he binds them up and he chucks them into the fire. And the fire shoots out and goes, consumes the soldiers that are leading Hanam Shalvazari to the fire. He doesn't care. We're going to watch him burn anyhow. But miraculously, they see in the fire, amidst the conflagration, there's not three, but there's four figures. And they seem to be totally fine. They're remarkably unharmed. An angel was sent by God to go save these three heroes. And of course, Nebuchadnezzar now is a little shaken by this. He pulls them out and does no harm to them. And indeed, until this day, we remember and herald that event on Yom Kippur. We invoke this God who answered Hanani, Mishal, and Azariah amidst the fiery furnace, answer us as well. Now, after Nebuchadnezzar died, there were only two more Babylonian kings. And we see this again and again throughout history, is that an a, a, a empire seems invincible. It seems like it will never diminish in stature and influence and power. But after Nebuchadnezzar conquered the whole world, there's only two more kings to follow him, to succeed him, and then the chapter of this empire will be closed. Uh, the two Babylonian kings are Evmoradach and Belshazzar, and indeed, Daniel's prophecy came true that Babylon is going to be removed and the Persians and the Medes are going to take over. And the leadership of this next cadre is King Darius of Media and King Cyrus of Persia. They're going to join forces and they're going to begin a conquest of the Babylonian Empire. So they first conquer much of the Middle East and then they do also take over Asia Minor and they conquer all of Babylonia with the exception of the fortified city of Babylon. And the city is besieged for a long time by these armies. And then on one night, they retreat. And the king of the Babylonian Empire, Belshazzar, the descendant of Nebuchadnezzar, he's convinced that's it. The threat has been removed. They're going to return and Babylon will be spared. So he right away decrees, we're going to have a massive celebration. He calls all his advisors and... He orders a massive feast. They pull out the temples, the temples vessels that they had looted, his grandfather had looted, and uh, they pull out all the concubines. It's going to be a revelry of debauchery. Everyone's going to celebrate. But amidst the celebration, uh, the revelry was halted when everyone sees this uh, disembodied hand appears and it starts to write a message on the wall. And this strange message in a strange language, no one seems to know what it means. It's in Hebrew, it says, What does that mean? 
and everyone is bewildered. Everyone is frightened. All the advisors, of course, are speechless. And no one seems to know what to do. And the queen remembers. There was this uh, Jewish guy, Daniel, many years prior. And the king, Nebuchadnezzar, he had his dream, and no one seemed to know, and he seemed to know all the answers. Maybe we call him. So Belshazzar calls him and says, listen, I'm going to give you everything you want, great honor, great riches, everything. Just interpret this message for me. And Daniel tells him, I'm sorry, I'm not going to accept all your rewards, but I will interpret this message. And he interprets it. God has counted the days of your kingdom and he's going to destroy it. You were evaluated and you were found guilty. Your kingship will be broken up and be given to media and Persia. And indeed, that very same night, these two powers under Darius and Cyrus, they broke into the city in Babylon. Belshazzar is assassinated either by them or by his own uh, people. And Darius the Mede, the older of the two conquerors, he becomes the emperor, the king. And now uh, the story of Babylon is now the story of the Medes and the Persians. Daniel is appointed to the high court of this new empire. That raises the envy and the ire of the other dignitaries, and they hatch a plan to derail Daniel. And they convince the king that we can't have all these offshoot religions. We have to have, okay, everyone everyone partake in uh, the uh, Zoroastrianism. No, none of this uh, people praying to their own gods. And that they knew, of course, that Daniel would disobey this command. And he indeed prayed to God facing west towards Jerusalem three times a day nonetheless. And the enemies find evidence of his prayer to God and they bring him to the king. And the king was quite fond of Daniel, but he knew that Daniel disobeyed his command. And it's important that disobeyed, rejected commands of the king do not go unpunished. So he agreed to have Daniel thrown into the lion's den. They take a bunch of hungry lions and they throw Daniel into the, into the den. They cover it up. We'll pick up the pieces in the morning. And of course, we know the miracle. God is with Daniel. The lions don't touch him. When the king sees this great miracle, he has Daniel released, and he has Daniel's enemies thrown to the same lions with quite different results. And he also made a big announcement, uh, the God of Daniel, the God of the Jews, the God of the Israelites, he is the real God. Now, he, Darius, lasts for only a year. He dies, and his partner, King Cyrus, Cyrus the Great, he becomes the king of this new mega empire, the Persian Empire. And in the first year of his rule, he issues a groundbreaking proclamation, the Cyrus's proclamation. And we know this is not only from Jewish sources, but we know this from secular sources as well, that King Cyrus made a, a, a proclamation throughout all the lands of Persia to allow all the people that were conquered by the previous Babylonians to go back to their original homelands, the way it is presented in chapter one, the very beginning of the book of Ezra, who's going to be one of the great leaders at the end of this uh, intermittent, intermittent period between the first and second temple. It reads as follows. 
King Cyrus says, Hashem, God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of earth, and he has commanded me to build him a temple in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Anyone among you from his entire people, may his God be with you, and let him go up to Jerusalem in Judea, and let him build a temple of Hashem, God of Israel. He is the God, which is Jerusalem. So he's essentially telling the Jewish people, go back to Israel, back to Judea, and go rebuild the temple. The temple was destroyed, what, 60 or 70 years prior? We're going to undo that. We're going to give you back your land, and we're going to give you back your right to worship freely. And a massive campaign is undertaken. The leaders of the nation, notably Zerubbabel, who is a descendant of King David, Everyone expects him to be the king of this new commonwealth. Uh, Nehemiah, Zechariah, Haggai, Malachi. These are the tail ends of the prophetic era in the Jewish nation. They call upon all Babylonian Jewry to heed the king's call and begin the plan to go back to Israel, back to Judea. And indeed, 42,000 and change set out on the road to Judea. Uh, the vast majority, the overwhelming majority even though they had come to Babylon in chains, they had settled down quite nicely in Babylon, in what's now Persia, the Persian Empire. And to them, the thoughts of going back to Judea, that's, that, that's in the distant past. We're here. We are comfortable here. Our businesses are here. Our families are here. Our communities are here. Our kids grew up over here. We're not going to go back to this wasteland in Judea, even though it was quite recent that we were weeping leaving Judea coming here. But still, a significant portion of Jews decide that they're going to go. And King Cyrus affords them the vessels, many of the vessels of the temple, and troops to guard them along their journey. And they arrive to Jerusalem. And they begin the plans to rebuilding the temple. And we know that you have to have an altar in the temple, but the sages rule that the temporary altar could be erected on Temple Mount, and they begin sacrifices. And they begin these plans to, to construct a brand new temple on the grounds, on the rubble, in the very same site of Solomon's destroyed temple. And there, there's a bunch of Levites there that are in charge, there's great sages there to answer all the questions, and all the crowds men, women, and children, young people and old people, they gather and they throng to witness this momentous historic event. We're going to lay the foundation stone upon which the new temple will be built. The young people were beside with themselves with joy. They were elated. They were ecstatic. And the old people were a little bit down. They remember the first temple. And the first temple had a splendor and a glory that is going to outweigh the heights of the second temple. But sadly, the construction is going to be halted. Those enemies of the Jews, the Kuthites, the Samaritans, they were hell-bent on keeping the Jews out of Israel and keeping the construction of the temple, stopping it from, from, from taking root and stopping the temple from going up. And initially, they tried to pretend to help the Jewish people but they were rebuffed. The Jews said, okay, this is a construction project for us. Usually we hire outside help, not this time. This time we're going to have to build it ourselves. And the Kuthites decided on a different tactic, and they send a message back to Persia. And they tell King Cyrus 
the Jews that you sent over here, that you gave the right to go back to their land, they're rebelling against you. And sadly, the king believes their malicious charge and he orders the temple project to be halted. The building of the temple is halted. The Jews in Judea are in limbo. But back in Persia, the Babylonian Jews are about to face an existential threat. The successor to Cyrus as emperor of all of Persia is going to be Ahasuerus. Ahasuerus is going to build alliances with the erstwhile Babylonian dynasty. He's going to marry Vashti, the daughter of the last king of Babylon, of Babylonia, Belshazzar. She was one of the people who survived that feast. And she's a granddaughter of Nebuchadnezzar. And he's going to embrace some of the anti-Jewish ideology that typified the Babylonian empire. And under his reign, the Jewish people will be given an annihilation decree. Together with the scion of Amalek, Amalek, the very first nation to contest the Jewish nation, the Jewish people, when they left Egypt, the very, that same nation that jumped in when no one else was willing to attack the Jewish people, when the Jewish people were marching triumphantly out of, out of Egypt, there was one nation that says, we are going to foil the Jews. That's Amalek. Their great-great-great-great-grandchild is Haman. And Haman, together with Ahasuerus, are going to begin a plot to destroy all the Jews in the entire Persian Empire. That is the backstory of Purim. And next week, we're going to go into detail with the actual story of Purim. What happened? What was the story? What were all the details of the decree and everything that happened in the decree and how did they survive?